So please join me in welcoming Pat Guilfoyle. Good evening. Often when I have the pleasure of talking about the Guthrie, one of my favorite things to do, I begin by doing a little bit of a live survey, and I want to do that tonight. Can I see hands on anyone in the room who started going to the Guthrie in the 1960s? How about people who started going in the 1970s? Uh-huh. How about the 1980s? Uh, the 1990s, and people who started going in the 2000s. Now, could everyone raise their hands? I see that we are in very good Guthrie company. I do this because it emphasizes for me the deep and abiding connection between the Twin Cities and its very own Guthrie. It's a kind of proprietary sense. The theater is really ours through its board, through its staff and acting company, many of whom come from here or come to here and then stay here, and most importantly, through its audience, you and me. We feel it when we're all alive in the same room and we laugh together or silent together, and then we burst into applause together. It is my pleasure tonight to introduce the current artistic leadership of our theater. Jeffrey Mianza, is the Associate Artistic Director of the Guthrie. An actor, director, and educator, Jeff began his collaboration with Joe Hodge at their former home, Playmakers Repertory Company in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. As part of the senior management team at the Guthrie, Jeff oversees the artistic department, including such critical pieces of the puzzle as casting, education, community engagement, season planning, and the Guthrie's esteemed training programs, such as its important collaboration with the university, the Guthrie Theater BFA Actor Training Program. Artistic Director Joe Hodge sits at the peak of the complex mechanism of the Guthrie, and he is responsible for, well, everything. He's made quite a mark here since he arrived in 2015 leading and guiding this large and opinionated troupe of artists to making seasons that thrill and shaping and solidifying all the parts of the Guthrie, the staff and the company, the audience, and the deep roots that tie the Guthrie to our community. He has directed everything here from Shakespeare to musicals, and I advise you to get your tickets right now for this summer's production of West Side Story. Joe brings enormous experience to us from all over this country. He has directed and performed at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, the New York Public Theater, the Alley, the Mark Taper Forum, the Folger, and many others. He has worked overseas in Salzburg, Edinburgh, Paris, Berlin, Venice, and Japan. I reel off these important names because it reminds us that the Guthrie is ours, yes, its work also belongs to the nation and to the world. Joe Hodge is much awarded, properly celebrated, 
and appeared on the Guthrie stage as a young actor in the 1980s in what I remember as a very challenging production called The Screens, and also in a show that some of us remember very well, the history plays. I hope he'll tell us a little bit about that. Please join me in welcoming the leadership of the Guthrie Theater, Associate Artistic Director Jeffrey Mianza and Artistic Director Joseph Hodge. Hi. Wow, what a nice introduction. I know, I was just saying. This you the sound so fancy. I sound very fancy. I know, I know. Uh, usually when someone reads your bio, it's terrifying, but that was actually very well handled. Thank you so much. Yeah, you. Um, I'm Jeff, this is Joe, in case you were confused. Uh, I, and today, you know, we, I was just reflecting on the fact that we've worked together. This month will be 11 years working together. And we very rarely get the chance to sit down and have these types of conversations. So it's a really great, I, I enjoy this very much. Me too. Uh, I hope you all do. We're, we're also hoping that we won't talk too much, that you'll, um, you'll start asking, that we, you know, when the time comes to ask questions, that you'll be ready to ask some questions because we do actually talk a lot to each other, uh, just not publicly. So, uh, but I wanted to start off by talking about uh, so, the Guthrie, as, as um, Peg was indicating, is, you know, it, it's unique as a regional theater because it is a theater that, that started with a certain level of excellence when that telegram came yeah. from Tyrone to this community saying that, I'm, yes, I'm going I'm to build this theater there. And can you tell a little bit more, just illuminate how it yeah. sits in sort of the, the, um, the strata of regional theaters and why it's so important. Yeah, so the Guthrie, <clears throat> pardon me, um, uh, and it feels silly to even talk about this with Peg in the room, who's, who's the Guthrie's <laughs> great historian, so if I mischaracterize any of this, Peg will uh, correct me. Um, the Guthrie was at the, the beginning of, of what we call the regional theater movement. Uh, prior to the regional theater movement, almost all of the professional theater in this country was housed in New York City. It was all in the commercial sphere, and there were tours that would uh, crisscross the country, but it was all centralized in New York. And there was a movement in the 50s and 60s to decentralize the American theater, and, and thus began the regional theater movement. And you had these incredible pioneers, uh, Zelda Fishhandler at Arena Stage, you had, uh, had Margot Jones in, in, uh, in Dallas, you had Nina Vance at the Alley Theater in Houston. All of these pioneers uh, on whose shoulders all of us in the field stand in the not-for-profit sphere. In today's parlance, we might call any of those other artists who started those theaters perhaps mid-career in today's language, maybe mid-career artists and makers. When Sir Tyrone Guthrie started the Guthrie Theater, he was already the most famous director in the world. He didn't create this theater in the Twin Cities because he couldn't have a career in New York City. He had an enormous career. He wanted to build a theater outside of the vagaries and the capricious nature of the commercial theater in New York City. He wanted a place where he could make work for a community. He wanted a company of actors to examine classic plays uh, and so put a small notice in the New York Times saying we, we want to put our shingle out and talk to seven different cities around the country uh, and uh, chose the Twin Cities and to be perhaps more precise, the Twin Cities and Minnesota chose him. And having chosen him, refused to allow him to fail. 
the original Guthrie was built with 8,000 discrete gifts gathered from all over the state. Very sweetly, one gift, $6.37 from a Sunday school in Mankato. This theater was built by the citizens of Minnesota as a gift to themselves. And this is what we try to honor over a half century later in guiding the Guthrie. And I will say that when I went on a listening tour at the beginning of my tenure here and went all over the state, it didn't matter where I went, or in Mankato or Red Wing or, or Duluth, uh, people are pretty clear. This is our theater. Don't mess this up. I mean, they, it, it's uh, a real sense of ownership uh, uh, by the people of Minnesota. And, that's, and, and interestingly, last week I, I was in New York casting a show and my choreographer was talking about uh, he was saying, you know, gosh, everyone knows the Guthrie. I, you know, I've, I've been talking about this project I'm working on, and everyone's like, oh, you're going to the Guthrie. Um, and so, so for artists, too, nationally, you know, there's a, there's a certain sort of um, cachet to the name, but also to the experience. There's an expectation, I think, of what that artistic experience is. And I'm curious for you, as someone who came here as a young man, uh, did you, I mean, had you heard of the Guthrie coming in, and, and you know, what, what was that... What was it like to join the company, uh, you know, straight out of grad school and, you know, and, and to do such something so epic as the screens? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I did know of the Guthrie. It was one of only a handful of theaters that I would have heard of as a, as a young artist because of its reputation. Um, and again, I think it has to do with the fact that when Guthrie, the, like the Guthrie never had a mom and pop phase. It just sort of arrived fully formed with these gigantic artists at the center of it. Not just Tyrone Guthrie, but you know, there was Jessica Tandy and there was George Grizzard. I mean, it, 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 the thing kind of arrived fully formed. So from its first moment, it was kind of a lighthouse for the field. And so the opportunity to come as a young actor and be part of, I came to do Joanne Acolytus' production of The Screens and then Garland Wright, then artistic director, invited me to stay and I stayed for two seasons um, as a member of the acting company. And I was, uh, you know, it's amazing, you know, sometimes in our lives important things happen and we don't know until much, much later that they were actually important. And I will say that that time at the Guthrie for me was one of those few moments in my life where I recognized exactly how meaningful the experience was, the fact that I was invited to be a part of this company, um, that I was so conscious of my own growth during those couple of years and how, how deeply meaningful and foundational that experience was. And, you know, it's funny, I did, I did four shows for Garland Wright specifically as a director, but the, the, the degree which he, to which he has influenced my life and career as an artist is wildly disproportionate to the time I actually spent with him. There's hardly a day that goes by, and needless to say, especially in this role, where I don't think of Garland, who is one of the country's truly great, great artists who we lost much too early. And uh, how... So you've now been here, oh, we've been here, uh, three-ish years? Almost three. Almost three years. Mm -hmm. And when you came into this position, and I suppose you know there was you had you were coming back to interview and all those things. But like when you came, when you're fully in this position, and how did it feel coming back? Because there's a you know there's a, obviously there's a different role as a as sort of the leader of the you know you're responsible as Indeed. as Peg said for everything, um, and. As opposed to being an individual artist as an actor, but like, yeah. what was the was the vibe different to you? And like, you know, what had that time done? Obviously, you're in a new, the, a new building, but what was it like to step back in? It's a great question. Um, uh, 
Yeah, very, very different. You know, as a young freelance artist who was then asked to stay, you know, I had an apartment on the other side of Loring Park, and my whole world was sort of a path from my apartment to the Guthrie and, and back. And so, you know, the community role for an actor is very, very different. You're not called on any, you don't actually, you're, not only do you, are you not called upon to participate in the administrative function of the organization, you don't actually even know what it is. Nobody's talking about that with you. So, uh, you know, the learning curve was really steep. What I carried in my heart was a huge love for the organization and the work that it has always made and what it represents. But the learning curve was, in fact, steep and, and meaningful. Um, you know, I, I share this story, and some of you may, may have been in the room uh, at the time. So on the day that I was announced as the eighth artistic director of the Guthrie, literally, like I would kind of walk out, and, and they say, this is the next artistic director of the Guthrie, and I mumble a few words, which I don't even remember anymore. It was terrifying. And then, um, and then uh, there was a Q&A, and so like, I said a few remarks, and then a hand shot up, and somebody said, so what's your vision for the Guthrie? I said, what's my vision? Where, where's the elevator? I just got here. I don't, I don't know. And so, and hence the listening tour and taking three months to just really promising that it's coming. We'll talk about all of that. But it's really clear at the Guthrie. The Guthrie is not, you have to run the theater you run. And the Guthrie is not designed, it's not a vehicle for my narcissism. It's not meant as a vehicle for my vision. That if, it's, if, we, if we had any vision worth talking about, it had to hold the, the, the dreams and the aspirations and the wishes of an enormous community, maybe community in concentric circles, who value the Guthrie. And so taking the time to learn those things was a pretty steep curve, I yeah. would say. And, and continues to be, I guess. Sure. Yeah. The, uh, so, and in, 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 in coming in, there are certain things, certain decisions made about programming or about casting or, you know, so artistic, early artistic decisions that, were, that, that you made. And, um, and where do you find yourself now? Where do, where do you think the theater is now as we, you know, because I'd like to talk about where we think we're headed, but yeah. where do you find yourself now in this moment? Yeah, you know, the Guthrie, the Guthrie can't be an identity theater of any kind. We have to be an awful lot of things to an awful lot of people. You know that almost 400,000 people came through our doors last year. Um, they don't all want the same thing from the Guthrie. They each want a slightly different Guthrie. There are people who just come for the classical work. There are people who just come for the musicals. There are people who come for Christmas Carol and maybe one other thing, right? So, so the, the, the community wants very, um, wants very different things from us. And so I think of it, and I shared this with, with Kathleen uh, over dinner, that. Uh, I think of it a little bit, in a, to use an analogy, of, of New York museums. You know, if you go to the Whitney in New York, you know you're looking at American art. If you go to MoCA, you know you're looking at contemporary art. The Guthrie is like the Metropolitan Museum of Art. You know, if you want an impressionist painter, that's on the fourth floor. If you want a Rothko, it's on the second floor. If you want the remains of a mummified cat, that's on the first floor. And, and that's a little bit who the Guthrie has to be. So a good season, and, and I'm saying it to you, though we do this work together, Jeff is my closest artistic partner at the Guthrie, um, as we put together pro a season that feels good to us is a season where all of our community can see themselves in one or two places, and then perhaps there are another couple of places places where they want to test uh, their own thresholds of taste and knowledge of what it is they might want to participate in. Um, so figuring out a way to be meaningfully in service to 
an enormous, finally, community, yeah. multiple communities of folks, um, is very much the charge. And so as we, we, so we have gone through over the last year and a half or so, we've gone through a strategic planning process and really kind of identified some ideas for our future and where we'd like to head. And, um, and one of the things, one of the areas of focus that, that I find most, ex most exciting, um, although I find quite a bit of it exciting, uh, is this, uh, uh, how the Guthrie interfaces with new work. And, and also, how does it hold on to its relationship to classic work? Because it yeah. is, uh, in essence, a classics theater. It was founded yeah. um, as a classics theater. And, and I wonder if you could just share a little bit of your thinking in terms of, yeah. of where we might head in those directions. Yeah. So, okay. So, whatever you, we're, we're, we're a culture that is so besotted with new things. All we ever talk about is new plays, new plays, new plays, new plays. Where are the new plays? Why is it that we're only doing old plays? But here's the reality. In 2014, TCG, which is the service organization for the not-for-profit theater, surveyed the whole field. They looked across the 2,000 not-for-profit theaters that dot this country in 2014, and they just, for, their, for the sake of counting, they said, let's consider any play 50 years old or older a classic play, just for counting purposes, and anything 50 years or newer would be considered a newer play. Only 14% of everything produced in this country in 2014, only 14% of all the plays were classic plays. And of that 14%, 40% of that 14% were plays by Shakespeare. The fact is we don't make a lot of classic plays in this country. It's a myth. It's an enormous myth. And there are plenty of good reasons why. It's a heck of a lot easier to put on stage a two-person play of two guys in contemporary clothes and a table than it is to get a 17-person period show on stage. They're big. They're expensive. They require specific skills from the artists who are charged to make them. So if the Guthrie isn't going to hold the space for classic plays, who's going to? And so I, uh, and we'll talk about new plays, of course, sure, sure. but it is such a matter of primacy to me. I think it's in the DNA of the organization. It was built to be a classics theater um, that we want to hold that space and we need to continue to develop that space. And, and when I say classic plays, it's not to look at them under glass. It's not to look at them like museum pieces, but it's with the foreknowledge that these old plays, these classic plays, have a great deal to talk to us about in our time, for right now, that they become relevant and resonant, and they remind us that these problems that we think are unique or that we've invented are problems that have been around for 2,500 years and the Greeks were writing about them, is actually a good and healthy uh, uh, way to gain perspective around the country. And I have this argument with colleagues all the time, you should also know. Um, you know, where it's like, well, well, you know, you should, have a, you should have a new playwright writing that play about war. And so I, I'm going to tell the story because I geek out on this. So, so um, the first play we have in Western drama is Aeschylus's play, The Persians. It was written 2,500 years ago. Aeschylus was a war veteran. He, uh, he fought at the Battle of Marathon. He fought at the Battle of Salamis. At Marathon, he lost his brother, which impacted his life greatly. Um, and uh, 2,500 years ago, after the Greeks have defeated the Persians against overwhelming odds, he sits down to write a play. What play does he write? He doesn't write about, rah, rah, the Greeks are awesome, look, how we, look, look what we did to the Persians. He writes a play from the Persian point of view. He writes a play from the point of view of the defeated. He talks about um, uh, 
old men, women back in, in, in Persia who will never see an entire generation of men who are wiped out in a stupid war uh, put out in the world by, by uh, capricious politicians. So not only does he write the first play we have in Western drama, he writes the first social justice play, he writes the first anti-war play, and it's hard for me to say that, a, that uh, you know, somebody who spent most of their life watching cat videos who just graduated from the playwriting program at Brown has more to say about war than Aeschylus does. <laughs> so I think, yeah, so I think we have to hold that space yeah. for ourselves. And, we, and uh, along those lines too, there's, there's the audience component of that, which is, that you know, one of the great things about the, the audience, audiences here in the Twin Cities is that you have theaters like the Guthrie that have spent meaningful time in classic work. And so you have a, uh, you know, there's a rich um, literacy of those plays and how those plays are, or stories are told. Yeah. And, and do you fear that like, so is, there, is, the, is the responsibility also that, that um, not only is it that we have to do those plays, but if we don't do those plays, that they, they um, they move further away from us, that they yeah. become more distant, that we don't have the tools in which, with which to read them. I think that's right. I think that's right. Um, and you and I were in a meeting very recently where one of our two magnificent dramaturgs, full-time dramaturgs who work at the, uh, the Guthrie, were part of season planning. You know, they'll, 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 they'll say, you know, we need to do a Chekhov play in the next couple of years because we haven't done one in four or five years. And if you go four or five or six years without doing a Chekhov play, you no longer have people who know how to look at a Chekhov play. And so, you know, even, even, I'm old. So many years ago when I went to school, you know, we trained around restoration texts, post-restoration. When's the last time anybody in this room has seen a restoration play? Like we don't make those plays anymore. And so if we don't, if we don't program those, if those plays don't belong, don't, uh, aren't played in the American theater, we'll stop, we'll stop training actors, training programs, train actors for what the field wants and desires. If the field's not making those plays, we'll stop training actors to make those plays. When we stop training actors to make those plays, it doesn't matter if I want to make those plays. There's nobody around to play them. And this becomes an enormous challenge. So I feel like not only does the Guthrie have to hold that space and continue to produce classic plays, I, uh, I, you know, I have my own evangelical job to do to ensure that the field doesn't let this go away. And I think it's a place where the Guthrie um, can lead that conversation. And uh, can you talk a little bit about, your, about where we might head in terms of a new works? Yeah. Um, or how, how the Guthrie might intersect with new work? So 25 years ago, there were only a handful of new play generators in the country. There was the Humana Festival, Sundance Lab, a handful. And the field responded, They're like, this is a crisis. And the field has responded, <coughs> pardon me, in my view, perhaps overcompensated. Now every significant theater, every major theater has a new play department, a new play program of some kind. What I'm trying to figure out for the Guthrie, we have 80 not-for-profit theaters in the Twin Cities. Many of them are committed to new plays. We have the Playwright Center right down the road, which is a major generator of new plays. So a lot of our conversation at the Guthrie is, where could we be useful? Where can the Guthrie be useful in the new play space where we're not just having a new play program just so we can say we have one too? Um, there's a, a fellow called Todd London who wrote a book called Outrageous Fortune about the plight of the American playwright. And he, he offers this provocation in his book, or at least I read it as such, where he says, you know, decades from now, we're going to look back at this era of playwriting in America, and we're going to see these exquisitely written chamber pieces. 
these duets and trios and quartets and quintets. But decades from now, we'll look back and we'll say, who, where, where were our symphonies? Who, were, who was writing our symphonies? Playwrights want to be produced. If you're a playwright and you're not named Tony Kushner, um, if you've written, if you've written a 15-person play, no matter how good that play is, you are going to have difficulty having it produced in this country. And so I thought maybe the place for the Guthrie to be in the new play game is to say, maybe we're not right for the early career playwright, maybe we go to the established playwright and we say, write your symphony. You write your symphony and we'll produce it at the Guthrie. And we choose that timeline. It's, you know, it's in the 21-22 season and they start writing and we put it on a developmental path so we put that in production so that we're creating a canon of work, a cl of classic plays for 50 years, 60 years, 100 years from now. And that seems to me a place for where the Guthrie can be engaged in a new play space, which isn't replicated. We're not inventing the wheel. There are people who do things like this. But I think in this community, it would be an added value and something that is, um, uh, well, an added value, a place where we can really add value and not just say we also have a new play initiative. Yeah. And let's just switch gears just a little bit. The, um you know, we have identified four core values for the theater, which include artistic excellence, community, uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and fi uh, fiscal uh, responsibility. Mm -hmm. And in particular, I was interested if you could talk a bit about community, because we talk about um, who the community was that founded this this institution, and and that community looks different now than it did yeah. um, 50 plus years ago. Yeah. And what what is the role of the theater now um, as we look at the world around us, and the immediate world around us, and the state at large, and, and how do we interface with that community? How do we, yeah. where do you see us going in that direction? Yeah, you know, that community question is certainly con connected to the equity, diversity, and inclusion uh, question. And it's connected to the programmatic question of classic plays. You know, these classic plays are, of course, it's a canon of work to state the obvious that is dominated by dead white men. Um, but it doesn't mean that the making of those plays have to be the purview of white men in the making of it. <clears throat> if we can agree that, I, I, I can go, whatever anyone in this room's cultural background, where you grew up, what, if, 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 we can go around this room and I bet every single person can tell me the story of Romeo and Juliet, okay? It's a classic play, we all own it, it's commonly owned, whatever our background. So I get super interested in who gets to tell these stories, through whose lens do we get to view these stories? Who's the director? Who are the designers? Who are the actors on stage? Who gets to tell uh, this story? Um, I think it's wildly dissonant if you have a play, whatever that classic play is, and there are 23 people on stage and they are all white in a community that is 31% people of color. Like, I don't even know how to look at that play. It feels so dissonant and out of tune. So, um, uh, the idea of service to community is, um, I guess I think of it in concentric circles. There's the community of artists and makers, artisans, administrators who work in the building, and that is a community. They've linked their professional lives to this organization and fulfilling their needs appropriately is very much on my mind. And then there is a, um, 
an, a wider artist community of those invited to come in as contract artists to work with us. Then there's a community that buys tickets to what we do. Then there's the larger uh, region of the state of Minnesota. Then there's a five-state region. Then there's a national conversation and an international conversation. And the Guthrie has to be intersecting with every one of those concentric circles in one way or another. We're deeply committed. There are 540 equity actors, professional actors, in the Twin Cities. And the best of them are as good as anybody anywhere, as we know. Uh, the Guthrie historically has had a great commitment to that community of actors. Roughly 70% of our actor weeks across any given season are promised to Twin Cities actors. You know, the 30% New York, LA, when you're casting George, you know, uh, for, for roles we can't fulfill in the community. That's another, I, that's another community uh, that we serve. And, and also, so along with that, you know, there's the community engagement component. There's the, how the, the uh, large cultural institution interfaces with, I mean, just, you know, to talk a little bit more about this. So, so historically, large cultural institutions had a transactional relationship with their community, right? Yeah. So, that, so that you, um, we build a beautiful play or you know, it's a beautiful piece of music, whatever, and the audience comes in, they experience it, and then it's, okay, bye, we'll see you next time. Yeah. Um, but, the, but, but understanding that, that there's a deeper responsibility, or the, I think it's a belief that we have, um, perhaps we share it, uh, yeah. is, is that, that we can no longer afford to simply ha hold that transactional space, yeah. uh, that we need to be more meaningfully uh, intertwined with community through all, uh, additional programming through conversation, through um, uh, et cetera. So I don't know if you want to talk a, a bit more about that, or even also thinking about education and how that functions for the for the institution. Because the you know the Guthrie's last year served thirty five thousand students roughly, um, and and so do you is that for you is that core to the success of the institution? Yeah. I mean, because we can make good plays, we know that we know how to make plays. Yeah. So so what is the deeper responsibility? Yeah, there? I love the question. Yeah, yeah. You know the. Um, yeah, there's, the, the, there's a moral and ethical uh, proposition. It's a not-for-profit theater. It belongs to the community that it is charged to serve. That is explicitly true. You know, the, the number of people I talk to who talk about, I came to the Guthrie for the first time with my school group, and we, Wendy was talking about this at, at dinner. You know, my high school group came in. You know, part of the reason there's such a huge theater-going community in the Twin Cities is that young people come all the time. And we have the, the best children's theater in the country is located in the Twin Cities. And the Guthrie historically, and even more now, young people get in all the time, very often at zero cost to them, to the school district, to taxpayers, teaching artists going out before, teaching artists going out after, teaching artists embedded in schools. It, it, it's, the, it's, it's an ethical thing to do, but it's also the business proposition because you're still coming to the Guthrie all these years later because when you were young, somebody, and I will connect this to a library story. I, th I, I talk about this all the time. So my father was blind. I was a terrible, terrible, terrible student, but I always read, and my father was a voracious reader, and I always read to him, and we didn't have any money. So those books all came from libraries, which were free, of course, and we had something called the Bookmobile in the town where I was growing up in the part of Miami, which would come through, which you could borrow books from, and when the Bookmobile came the following Thursday, you'd return it and take another. And because somebody provided books for free for me, I have spent, I don't know how many tens of thousands of dollars over a lifetime buying books. I mean, I, I'm a reader, and we're a nation of readers, largely because we have libraries. 
is. And so when I, you, can put, you can think of the theater in this way as well. Here's what the field knows when we go, well, where are all the young people in our audience? And it's like, well, young people don't come to the theater. Here's what happens. If we invest in young people when they are young, high school age, we invest and invest and invest with the foreknowledge that they're going to go away for a time. They're going to get in their 20s, they've got to go to school, they've got to go to the keg party, they've got a partner, they've got to have kids, they've got to have a career. They, there's so much focus that disallows a whole lot of going to the theater. But what the field shows is that if you've invested early, people will go away for a time, they come back to us in their 40s and they're with us until end of life, they're with us forever. What the field also reflects back to us is if you don't take care of it on the front end, you can't come to somebody when they're 40 for the first time and say, hey, come participate in the life of the theater. And um, it doesn't work that way. So we invest early with the foreknowledge that we're not going to hold on to them forever. But when they grow up and they make their lives wherever they make them, if it's in Cleveland, we hope they're going to the Cleveland Playhouse and that that theater becomes a part of their life in the important way the Guthrie uh, is... Um, does so here. Um, you know, we know that, we know, everybody seems to know that sports does good things for kids. Kids don't all learn the same ways. Kids don't all succeed the same ways. There are some kids who can't succeed in school who through sports or music find a path. It organizes their lives. It helps them mature. The theater does the same thing in ways that are, for whatever reason, wildly undervalued. Nobody, <laughs> nobody talks about the arts the way they talk about sports, which is why you see arts getting stripped out of schools. And for kids who are not athletic, who are, who struggle in a, in a typical curriculum, um, you know, the arts are another path and it's another way. And it makes, we, studies all show, every one of them show. If you're in the STEM uh, areas, the arts make you better at whatever you do in the STEM areas. Every single study shows this. But the purpose of the arts finally is not that it makes better doctors, lawyers, and engineers. The, the purpose of the arts finally is it makes us all bigger people. It makes us better human beings, and it makes us better citizens, and it makes us a better community. And, uh, and so we take the investment of in, in young people and others who have no access to professional arts experiences, we take that very, very seriously at the Guthrie. And under Jeff's leadership, uh, we've grown these areas really, really substantially in, the, in only three years' time. Yeah. Uh, I think it'd be a good time to ask questions, or you ask questions. Uh, so I think we have some roving mics. There's one there and one there. Uh, so what questions do you have about the Guthrie? Where, you know, uh, where we are, where we're headed? What's your favorite show? When did you see A Christmas Carol for the first time? <laughs> Not all at once. Oh, there's one right there. Gentlemen, thank you. Um, would you talk a little bit about level nine and what's happening up there and what you intend to be happening up there? Uh, and maybe a touch on the three theaters, the three spaces? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I'll tee it up and maybe you can talk about this a bit. Sure. I'm talking too much. So um, the Guthrie has three spaces in this glorious facility on the Mississippi. 
There is an 1100 seat thrust stage, which is very much the footprint and shape of the original thrust stage. It's a couple of hundred seats smaller, mostly having to do with ADA compliance uh, 50 years later, making this building, or uh, 40 something years later. There's an 1100 seat thrust, there's a 700 seat proscenium. A thrust has an audience on three sides. A proscenium is as you look into a picture frame, a uh, 700 seat proscenium. And then on the ninth floor, we have an adaptable space, roughly 200 seats but can be put in any configuration uh, which is our level nine um, and our thought was that um, the main stage programming what goes on in the two big rooms has so much of our focus and my view of level nine was it was treated a little bit like an attic in a house it's where you put things that you don't know what to do with otherwise you know and I thought that well this thing should have its own as strong an identity as our two larger rooms does. And uh, Jeff and I were talking a great deal about a quote of another former artistic director at the Guthrie called Liviu Chule, who once said that a community can be measured by the questions its theater asks, which I find so beautiful. And I said, so a community can be measured by the questions its theater asks. What if we had a space which was all about asking those kinds of questions? Maybe that quote goes on the wall of the ninth floor. And Jeff and I were talking about that even before we'd fully started, or maybe before you'd fully started here. And it began a conversation about, can we use the ninth floor in the Greek idea of agora, of a civic, a civic space, a town hall space, a place of dialogue, a place where we could wrestle with important, complicated, challenging questions, maybe even around issues that divide us. And could we have a space for that? And then if we had a space for that, could we price it in a way that, that if you could afford to go to the movies, you can come see a play at the Guthrie. And then could every single performance of everything we do in that space have a community component, a dance party, a, a, a Q&A, or whatever it might be. Um, and so we thought that was a good idea. So, uh, so we went to our friends at the Mellon Foundation and we say, oh, we have an idea. And they said, we love your idea and here's a million dollars over three years and go do those things. And so we've had this extraordinary privilege um, over these last couple of years with this Level 9 series to experiment with some of these ideas. Tickets are $9, lower than the price of a movie ticket. We know it's not nothing, but if, but if you can afford to go to a movie, you can afford to come see a play at the Guthrie. We invest in it really meaningfully, some of the most meaningful art making and indeed community conversations we've had have happened in that level nine, in that level nine space uh, in ways that I'm really excited about. It also includes a commissioning component and um, uh, supporting companies that devise work that don't start with the script. But we took that multi-pronged initiative to Mellon and in the way that some things are very hard and some things are very easy. Our friends at Mellon were just like, this is easy. We think it's a great idea and you should do it. Um, and that's been a great gift because I think we've learned a lot. And we've taken some of the lessons we've learned on that ninth floor and been able to drive those down into the organization in really fundamental ways, which I think makes all of our work a whole lot better. There's a question right there. I think the university is very proud of the BFA partnership with the Guthrie. And I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about that partnership, the role of the Guthrie, the role of the students, how that interaction takes place. And then I'm a fundraiser. So what makes it distinctive 
amongst other similar programs around the country? Yeah, it's a great question. Do you want to take it? Sure, sure. So um, the way that the Guthrie functions is that we have certain uh, staff who are um, Full, fully committed to the BFA program. So they, they are part of a department that, um, it's the Department of Training Programs that includes uh, this, uh, this program primarily as the, the main focus. Um, so we have a director of training programs, we have an, a, an associate, and then we have two, we, we share in the um, salary of two additional faculty members who serve as coaches for our shows and then also teach in the program. Um, also the students throughout their four years, they come to the Guthrie, we have what, what are called Guthrie Mondays. So they spend their Monday at the Guthrie every week and they meet with Joe and me. They, they meet with uh, visiting uh, directors. They, uh, there's a group of our third year students who just, uh, there's a, a director in town working with us who, um, she's about to direct something in London, and she, was, she emailed me and she's like, I, I, I just need to test out some ideas. Can I, do, do you have a group of students or something that I can work with? And I was like, oh, yes, we do. We have a BFA program. Uh, so these, these third year BFA students got to spend two weeks working with this, uh, you know, she's, a, she's an associate director of the National. So they're spending two weeks working with her on a, and experimenting with her on a play in her methodology, uh, but also with a text that they might not encounter otherwise. So. Uh, so they have those Guthrie Mondays. Um, in their third year, they, do, they spend their, their uh, fall in London, and when they come back, they're really focused on rehearsal and performance, uh, and that's when they start doing uh, a lot more projects, uh, both here and then in their senior year, their final year, they do a fully mounted production at the Guthrie in the studio, uh, as well as a showcase where we bring in um, uh, casting directors and agents from New York and LA, and they, they get to see the students' work. So, uh, and, and beyond that, when those who decide to stay in the area, or even if they don't stay in the area, many of the actors that we hire on our stages uh, are from the BFA program. Uh, so there's a, um, uh, they become part of the life of the theater, and, and I think in a way that one of the things that makes it primarily unique from other training programs is that it is a, it, while it's a BFA program, it has a liberal arts focus so that they have their core classes that they're taking, but they're also experiencing uh, such a wide range of, of coursework during their four years that, that oftentimes what happens, in my opinion, with BFA programs is you know they get in at 18 and they're, all they're doing is they're dancing and they're working on their, their speech and they have beautiful voices, but they have no life experience and they've read nothing. Um, because they, all they've been focused on is plays right. and being right. a good actor, which right. is great. They can be right. great technicians, but the beautiful thing I love about the BFA students and the training that, that happens for them is that they are game, they take huge risks, they'll do anything. They'll, you, like, I've, got, I've had the great privilege of getting to teach them in my three years, I have some time with them, and I swear, if you, anything you ask them to do, they, you know, this is the thing you love in an actor, is you say jump and they say how high. And they're like, jump, do you want a backflip? Do you want me to do it in French? They, they're like, I'll do it. <laughs> um, so uh, I don't know how you jump in French, but uh, anyway, so they're, they're, they're a, it's, a, it's a unique group of students, um, and I think over the course of its 20 years, you know, be, whether or not the students end up 
in the field as actors, they are really important, uh, committed citizens to the communities they, that they, in which they reside. So they're, they're working in all levels of, um, of the arts, in film and, and TV and theater, uh, are fine artists, but they're also you know, um, working in nonprofits, they're teachers, they're, um, they're just really cool people, I think, ultimately. So I don't know, there's, there's something in that recruiting process that the, the folks they have some sort of magic or mojo that they just pick really cool students. Uh, so it's it's uh, it's a very special program, I think, uh, and it's been it's been great to intersect with it. You know, even in the few years that I've been here. Do I need this? Um, was to see the acting company, to see the same actors in, in very many different plays and different uh, presentations of their personality. And I don't know if that's something that's gone the way of uh, plays written for 30 people. Uh, is that something that could ever come back? I know you do hire, you said 70% uh, of your shows come from local talent, but those days when you had an acting company and you could see that person evolve over the years was just really thrilling for me. Yeah, yeah it's, a, it's a great question uh, and a great observation. You know, um, uh, many of us grieve the loss of acting companies in this country because you also train together, you know, you work together, you have a shorthand, you can go much faster in a rehearsal period which is never enough time. You can move so much faster with people who you've been making work with for many, many, many years. Um, I'm a huge believer in company. Uh, I've grew, I grew up in companies. I belong to one. I belong to several. Our former theater had a resident company. I'm in favor of them. And I think maybe it's for the good of the field that we don't have them anymore. If, and for this reason, 30 years ago, if you had a skilled, even slightly diverse company of 25 actors, you could make every play everyone in the American theater was making 30 years ago. Today, if you want to make in a season an August Wilson play, a Luis Alfaro play, a David Henry Wong play, a Shakespeare and a Shaw, if you don't have 120 actors in your acting company, you can't fulfill a diversity of programming which you really seek if you run an organization today. So if you have a group, and I'm making this up obviously, let's say you have a group of 20 company members and two are Asian American, and you're making a David Henry Wong play with 10 Asian Americans, then I'm paying these 18 people, and two of them will be in the play, I'm paying 16 people to not work for the next two months while we work on this David Henry Wong play. And, and so I think it's good for the diversity of programming that we can go, okay, the world's big. If we want to make a play of David's, we're just going to go to New York, go to LA, go overseas, we'll put together the 18 actors we need to tell this. Um, I guess that's the flip side of it. And, um, and I know in those companies I belong to with Garland, I remember the conversations with John Jory at Actors Theatre of Louisville, I remember the conversations. You put together an acting company, you say, okay, I'm, I'm, and you're calling your friends, the people you adore, and you say, move to Minneapolis. This is your theater. And, you know, Izzy Monk comes, and, and, and Sally Wingert comes, and, and uh, and you're committed to those people. 
And let's just expect that you can't grow that company over time. And people have moved their lives. They've bought houses. They have kids. They go to school. You're not firing. You're not moving those people out of the company. So you've got this company of young, vibrant people who 25 years later, can only, you know, you, your theater can only program the gin game because there's nobody <laughs> under the age of 50 in the company. You know, I, I began to a company, I belong to a company called City Company, um, uh, Ann Bogart's company. And we all started as very young people. I didn't stay very long. They've had this very illustrious career. They've just celebrated their 25th, maybe, uh, anniversary. And all of those core company members, all of them, are my age or older, you know? And so, and Anne bemoans the fact that she doesn't have young people in her company. So she's making work on necessarily to these people who have invested their entire lives, artistic and otherwise, to this company. So I, I just think there's a discussion to be had. I'm sad about the loss of it, but in the end, I, I guess I'm not 100% sure that it's to be wished for that those, that, that would be broadly reinstated uh, across the field. There's a question down here. It's you. It's you. Do I just talk? No, you have a There's microphone There's a mic coming. I think for many of us in Minneapolis, it was an utter thrill to see Stephen Epp performing in Indecent. Yeah. Because we've watched him for a long time, and he's, he was wonderful. Yeah. And it moves me to ask you to talk about, well, it's kind of a follow-up to the previous question. The Guthrie, I, I, I wonder if you think this is true, is perhaps responsible for the fact that we have so much theater in the Twin Cities. And it seems like you've done a pretty good job of reaching out to all of that theater mm -hmm. in the Twin Cities. Maybe talk about that. Yeah, you know, we belong to, we, we, we're very conscious that we belong to an ecosystem. Ecosystem? How do you say that word? I say ecosystem. Do you say ecosystem? Yeah. So, so we belong to an ecosystem of 80 not-for-profit theaters, and we try very hard to be good citizens in that landscape. I mean, we're, we're obviously the largest of those things, and it's very easy that we can just be sort of the, the bad guys who are absorbing all the resources, and we're the man, and, they're the, and there's a lot of, you know, there's silliness in those conversations. Um, but mostly we try to be really good citizens and, and, uh, and, and sometimes, you know, uh, um, sometimes without knowing it, oh, well, I've come to this observation. The Guthrie, the Guthrie can move four degrees to starboard, which creates ripples, which creates waves that can throw some people to shore. And sometimes as much as we want to change and do more and do differently, we try to keep strongly in mind what that ripple effect and who may be harmed by anything that we do at, uh, at, at the Guthrie programmatically in terms of community, artists that we invite. Uh, Etc. You know, the ninth floor we've leveraged really fully in service, and again, it didn't start with me, it was really began with Joe and, and did so beautifully. There are a lot of itinerant companies in town that don't have brick and mortar uh, theaters. The Guthrie can provide that space for them, and there's infrastructure to support their work, which we which we do, and to put flatly, we do at a loss. We do as a as a way to participate in the community in a good in a good way and to do something. Um, and to be good citizens in that landscape. But it's tricky, it is tricky. You know, everybody, there are 80 not-for-profit theaters. There are not 
in any place. There, there's not unlimited resources. So, you know, everyone's competing for audience. Everybody's competing for contributed monies. Everybody, you know, the, there is a level of, and I wouldn't say it's unfriendly, it's not sharpened elbows competition, but it is. And there's a sense of, I don't know. It, you know we're, we're conscious of trying to be really, really good citizens. And we're also aware that, it's, that, that there are times where um, folks feel like we've stepped on their toes a bit and it requires some effort to, to normalize that. Yeah, did that answer the question, kind of? I'd ask you to talk about one of the things. I often think that the reason we have so much theater in town is because of Tyrone Beckley. Yeah. Do you oh. think so? Yeah, I think so. I think so. I think I've I never think, been in a town with more thrust theaters. Like that just doesn't happen. Right. So you know that nobody that has a thrust. Right. That's exactly right. right. So like the the fact like that didn't come from nowhere. It came yeah. from from the fact that on Vineland Place there was this ginormous thrust theater totally that then right. was replicated elsewhere. Totally right. Um, so uh, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, Joe. But no, no, that's like, right. I think it's such a great, great point. Um, I, I mean, look, the proofs in the you know in 1963 when when you all chose to invite. Tyrone Guthrie didn't to have a thing. You know, the only other theater in town was the Old Log Theater. And now there are 80 not-for-profit theaters. Of course it grew up around, around the Guthrie strength and influence. And I will say also, part of the way that we're good citizens in this landscape, you know, the Sally Wingerts and James Williams and, and Regina Williams and, and, and Steve Yoakum, Nat Fuller, if the Guthrie wasn't here, those great artists may well have not made their artistic homes in this town. Because Sally can do two shows a year at the Guthrie or three shows a year at the Guthrie, she can afford, using a term, she can put together a life in such a way that I can do a couple things at the Guthrie, and then it allows me to go work with 10,000 things. It allows me to work with Park Square, other theaters that I love, but are not remunerative in quite the same way. So the Guthrie holds a really important part in the ecosystem in that way, where they, um, where there are folks who can participate in our world and it does some very good things for them and allows them to make sense of their artistic lives in this community even while doing a lot of other things they really care about, which would perhaps be impossible to do if the Guthrie wasn't part of their equation. Other questions? Oh, right here. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so the question. Working on the thrust yourself, yes. What did I learn about working on the thrust myself? So I confess that my, my former job, where Jeff and I came from, was also a thrust stage. It was a 550 seat thrust, so half the size of the Guthrie thrust. But the, you know, my little secret is I've only directed five plays in my life on a proscenium. Everything I've ever made is on a thrust. So it's a. Uh, 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 I don't know if it had anything to do with why they hired me, but the thrust doesn't, the thrust doesn't frighten me in any way. I know how to stage on it. I, I love the work. You know, when, you, when you're in a picture frame of a proscenium, everybody is looking at the same staging configuration, whatever that geometry is. On a thrust, the room has to be legible if you're sitting here, if you're sitting here, or if you're sitting here. So the work of a director goes from chess to 3D chess, and you have to, and, uh, I think it's a muscle, and I think it's one that I've practiced for a dozen years. And so uh, I love working on the thrust. And the Guthrie thrust is particular. It has its unique challenges. But I tell directors when I hire them for it that it's a tricky space, but my, in my view, it gives up its secrets pretty readily. It's a beautiful, 
astonishing room. And in three years, I've directed six plays at the Guthrie, and they've all been on the thrust. It's getting embarrassing. So uh, next season, I'll direct on the proscenium for the first time, and we'll see how that goes. <laughs> yeah. Other things. Someone, yeah. Oh, yes, in the back, back there. there? What do you like about the building, and what would you like to change? Yeah, so, look, that building is a major architectural event, and like all major architectural events, it has its detractors. Some of you may be in this room. I confess to loving the building entirely. I love it. I think it's an astonishment. I think it is one of the world's truly, truly great theater facilities. Um, I think the thrust is the most intimate 1100 seat room I've ever been in in my life. I think it's an extraordinary act of, 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 of architecture, thought, and again, no accident that that comes over from the old, uh, from the old Guthrie. Um, to the extent of what would I change, I, I, and, and this is part of our strategic planning work, I think we really want to warm the public, the public areas, you know, the public areas of the building itself, the lobby areas, the big central lobby, making it more inviting, making it warmer, making it feel a bit more like a theater as we understand theaters to be. You know, there's a, there's a sense that, I, I heard it a lot, almost everywhere I went, that the Guthrie feels uh, that it's a very cold building, an imperious, that it's cold, a hard un building. And then I look over at our friends at Mia, who I adore, and it's like, well, that place is poured out of a single piece of rock. I mean, like, the thing is, like, I mean, that's a hard, that's a hard, but so what are we talking about? And I realize, I think, that it actually, it's not the building itself that people find impervious. It is something about coming into that space and the vastness of the lobby and the ceilings and that poured cement floor, all of which I find architecturally and otherwise very beautiful. But it's not the most warm and human experience one could have. So we're thinking a lot about what we do while we maintain the architectural intent. What do we do to warm particularly some of those public spaces? Um, you know, and then there are things, green room, bathroom, artist needs. Uh, you know, there's no real place at the Guthrie for artists to warm up before shows, which is uh, a challenge in that you wish somebody, uh, look, I, I, I want to be really clear. There's not one artistic director in a thousand that can lead a community to the building of a building like that. It is an astonishing legacy of my predecessor, and I feel incredibly honored to be able to come to work there every day. And yet, having built it, just like if you build your house or redo your kitchen, you go, ah, you know, if I had this to do again, um, maybe I would. And I think a lot of that stuff is about... Um, ease of experience for both uh, artists who intersect with the building uh, and indeed uh, patrons as well. Yeah, it's interesting the way you say that because it, you know, I think that, that for staff, it's, if you're there all the time, you kind of adapt and you accommodate, and so it really becomes about those who intersect with us more periodically, who are the yeah. artists and the, the, the guests, we have to be looking after them yeah. in a more meaningful way than, than perhaps the building does currently. Yeah. Um, some ways. Other I think that's right. thing? Something right here. Oh, right there, sorry. Uh, it seems to me that one of the major challenges of uh, the arts in our society is diversity. If you look around this room, you see that we haven't conquered it here. Uh, 
I wonder, uh, the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra, for example, can go into neighborhoods, uh, they can remove the fear or the, at least the, the reluctance to enter a strange building in a strange community uh, to, uh, for people to see the, uh, the, the music that they present. What can you do, given that you have strong uh, uh, architectural demands on what you present, to, uh, to try to break down this kind of barrier to diversity? Yeah. Yeah, you know, the diversity question. I mean, I've said, I've said in other places, and I'll say it again here. If somebody were to say to me, Joe, you can diversify your audience by 1% a year for each of the next 10 years, I'd sign immediately. Because the fact is, it's slow. If the American theater could have solved it, it's filled with a lot of really, really good people and a lot of very good thinkers. Um, it's not easy to solve. But I think what's really clear to us is we have to go first. If the programming isn't diverse, you know, what are we inviting a community in to see? And if the programming itself isn't diverse, if the artists who are on stage don't look kind of like the community, overall community in which we reside, then it's a pretty cynical invitation to ask people to come and participate in the work when they can't see themselves anywhere, represented anywhere in the, in the organization itself. So our feeling is for the moment, we have to keep our eyes on our own paper. We have our own work to do in diversification of our own board of directors, diversifying our own staff, diversifying our creative teams, diversifying the programming that we put on, that we put on stage. Um, I will say additionally, when I went on that listening tour around the state, everywhere I went, people said, will you tour? The Guthrie used to tour. Will you come out to us? And I thought, you know, maybe that made sense when we only had one venue, one theater. And, but now we've got three spaces. They're dynamically programmed. There's something for everybody. Just, just come to us. And uh, I woke up the day after our presidential election. Uh, utterly, utterly chagrined, just with a recognition that we live in two Americas and we don't know each other at all. And we don't talk to each other at all. So we say the Guthrie's for everybody, but mostly who it's for are people with the, you know, inclination and the means to, to get to us. And it's, uh, it's allowed us to really reframe our thinking on this. And so um, we're re-examining the idea of touring and getting out to communities and not touring in two huge tractor trailers with a giant tech rider only going into proper theaters, but something that can go into a community center, something that can play on a stage like this, something that can go into a farm cafeteria, something that can go out of our building, meet people where they are. Our theaters make very lousy forts, uh, but they make very good bridges and they make very good bridges to conversation. And to figure out a kind of piece, something non-hectoring, not lefty elites coming out telling folks what to do. But if we could find an entertainment, a play, a something that could get us in the same room with one another, I think that'd be a really, really good step. Um, so I think there are cultural divides. I think there's a rural-urban divide that we're looking to uh, that we're looking to bridge. And after feeling very strongly that we shouldn't get out of the building, that we should figure out how to get more folks to us. Um, uh, we've changed our minds on that point, and we're going to figure out how to do this, perhaps as, as soon as this coming fall. Okay, one more question, I'm told. Oh, yep. Um, I just, in light of diversity, quote, have you uh, ever considered combining certain uh, plays, theater with penumbra, 
combining, uh, so uh, I think the question was, have we ever thought of uh, like partnering with Penumbra? Yes. yes. Yeah. yeah. Do you want to? Yeah, sure. Well, the Guthrie has. We've partnered with Penumbra uh, uh, several times historically. We haven't since I've been here uh, in the three years' time. We partner with Moo, uh, Moo Performing Arts. Um, uh, who else? Uh, I think of the. Um, the uh, uh, Iraqi American Reconciliation oh. Project. I think of um, uh, the, our veterans. I'm sorry, I'm not remembering. It's not because I don't know. Um, yes. Yes. Uh, so we partner. We sorry. partner with theaters around the town a lot. Mostly we privilege, uh, to use a term, mostly we privilege those theaters that don't have a home. You know, they don't have another, but Penumbra has its own home. And of course, finding a way to partner with Penumbra on something that makes sense for them and for us, of course, would be thrilled. Um, but they, you know, they don't have an, you know, it's not like they're knocking on the door saying, Joe, come, you know, we, we really have to do something together. But uh, uh, we're in continual conversations, whether it's with Jeremy Cohen at the Playwright Center or, or Sarah Rasmussen at the Jungle, uh, continually going, uh, you know, can we do this together? And then it's like, oh, well, that doesn't make sense. We had one of those recently. It was almost like, doesn't quite make sense. We'll find something in the future. But we're looking for those local partners. It's a lot of fun to, if you can find the alchemy where two plus two adds up to five, that's what you're looking for. And, and one has to be careful because sometimes in these partnerships for one or the other, two plus two adds up to three. And it ends up being an enormous disappointment. So, you know, you have to be incredibly thoughtful about how we enter into those um, into those partnerships. You're coming up. I'm coming up. Oh. I take you out. Okay. Oh, yeah. oh right. Okay. <laughs> Thank you so much, Joe and Jeff, for this very um, intimate and enlightening look at the magic that you make in our community. And we are so grateful Thank to you. you. Thank you, Joe. Thank you.